Good morning, Christ Bible Church. My name is Chuck Oltman. I'm a pastor, elder here at uh, Christ Bible. It's my privilege and honor to uh, bring us God's word today. You know, at CBC, we work hard and we try to be a church that uh, are fully devoted followers of Jesus, a church that uh, preaches the word, uh, makes disciples and makes disciples and engages our world. And a key element in this is that first part, preaching the word. Uh, we see that as a, a significant shaping thing in all of our hearts, in our hearts and in yours as well, hopefully. And that's uh, that thing we're about to undertake here this morning. And as we grow in Christ-likeness through this process of discipleship in the f- formation in our hearts through God's word, we want then to naturally engage our world in ways that brings glory to God and grows his kingdom. So preach the word, be disciples and make disciples, and engage our world. I just wanted to remind you of that. I do that often, but that's who we strive to be as a church, and I'm so thankful the banners are back up. If you ever really want to wonder who we are, if you want a snapshot of who we are as a church, that's a a good uh, place to look. So before we dive into the text this morning, I wanted to spend just a little bit of time, as I often do, uh, making sure that we're properly oriented in the story. Uh, This is my meager attempt at catechesis some way to develop a rhythm, to some way of remembering and reminding me and us of uh, who God is, what he's in doing, and to anchor this deeply in our souls. So the whole Bible together, the Old Testament and New Testament, tells a single story. It tells a story, the grand narrative, if you would, of, of, of all of creation through all of eternity. It's one of the many grand narratives that exist in society today. That we humans, both uh, from a religious perspective and often from a secular perspective, try to piece these things together in ways that explain the world around us. Uh, The big questions in life. Uh, How did we get here? Who are we? Uh, What happens when we die? What's wrong with the world? How how can it be fixed? Excuse me, how can it be fixed? And I think the Bible's meta-narrative, the Bible's grand story, is the one story, the one true story that connects all these things uh, best. So that's this story, and I just want to remind us of what that story is, and if I could maybe advance the slide here. I love technology sometimes. So so the best way to think of this is a six-act play, uh, and just to help see where we are in this thing as we preach this morning. So act one, God created everything and it was good. He actually uh, created man as the pinnacle of that and said it was very good. That happens somewhere over in here. Then, uh, and this is in, you know, rough years, maybe plus or minus a century, so I wouldn't uh, hold these too closely, but uh, they're in 500-year chunks, a good way to think of it. Abraham was about 2,000. Moses was about 1,500. David was about 1,000. The Babylonian exile was about 500 uh, B.C., and 500 years later was Jesus. So uh, God made everything was good. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, and then man rebelled against his creator God in Genesis 3. And then the whole rest of the Old Testament, uh, the rebellion is Act 2. Act 3 is this story of God's plan of redemption. Begins in Genesis 3, somewhere in here, and goes through the whole Old Testament to tell the story of God's plan of redemption. Um, And then from that point, uh, Act 4 is actually that redemption that was promise was delivered by God. God redeemed his people. That's seen in uh, the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Act five is the age we are in now, if you would, the church age, where God takes his 
his kingdom and uses us in that way to, to grow it and expand it and to uh, make his name known throughout the world. So that's over in here somewhere. I know I'm in the middle of some of you, so I apologize. And this is where Timothy is. This is kind of the, the slice of life we're at here as we preach today. And eventually, Acts 6, the king will return. He will make everything right. He will right all the wrongs. Come, Lord Jesus, come. We look forward to that day. So that, that's the big picture, if you would. So as we study 2 Timothy, uh, again, it occurs in Act 5 in that church piece. Uh, God engaged in the world through the church. And it's, again, that's where we exist still as the church today. And just while we're here, today we're going to hear this term, the last days again. We've seen this before in Timothy. But that refers to the time between Christ coming the first time and Christ returning the second time. So that's this period right here. Uh, and that's, again, we'll, we'll touch on that when we get to uh, that part of the passage. So I also wanted to take this and zoom in a little bit closer and take a look at, like I said, technology is good. So most of the time. So this is where we are today. And I think this is important because you have to understand the context that Paul wrote this letter to, to Timothy in. So these are, this is a slice of Paul's ministry life, if you would. That's his missionary journey number one, missionary journey number two. He picks up Timothy somewhere in here on this journey, so it's probably just before 50. Takes Timothy with him on uh, the rest of his missionary journey and to follow. Missionary journey three, Paul ends up, and he actually preached once in Ephesus in a synagogue in this second journey. Then he comes back and he says, hey, I'll come back if I can. He does, and he spends three years likely in Ephesus with these people that he's now writing to Timothy about. So he was there for a significant period of time, finished that, went back to Jerusalem, ended up, if you remember the story in Acts, he ends up being taken prisoner or being arrested and ends up in Rome because he asked for a trial for, from Caesar. And then he ends up in Roman prison here, and he writes to the Ephesians from prison here back to these people that he would spent three years with. Then he's released from prison. The book of Acts ends uh, somewhere in that time frame. And then during that interim period while he's out of jail, he writes Timothy and Titus. He writes the first letter to Timothy and letter to Titus. And then he gets rearrested. Uh, again, this is not in the book of Acts. This is afterwards. It's from church history. He gets rearrested. And in that time period, he writes the second letter to Timothy. And that is the book we're studying today. And I just think it's important uh, for two reasons. One, to give you some sense of the fact that these weren't strangers to Paul. He knew the church. He knew the church well. Timothy was his protege, and he was writing this letter to Timothy and to Titus. It's, they're called the pastoral epistles. That little red square uh, there identifies those, and those are the letters that Paul wrote late in his life to people leading churches. Uh, Paul writing to Titus, who is in Crete, and then writing this to Timothy, who is leading the church in Ephesus. So this is his last shot at, hey, I'm not going to be here much longer. I know that, so I want you to understand how to run this church well. Here's how to deal with these issues. So that's the context, if you would, of what we're looking at today. So with that as a backdrop, let's go ahead and dive into the text here. This is 2 Timothy 3, uh, verses 1 through 9. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, 
slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid these people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we're thankful in this period of thanksgiving for you. Lord, for your love for us, for your desire to reveal yourself to us through your word. Father, we pray this morning as we ponder these scriptures, Lord, that you would take them, that you would illuminate these in our hearts. Lord, you promised us that that's what your Holy Spirit does. And Lord, I pray this morning you would do that in my heart, in our hearts, that we would understand better uh, who you are as you deal with these church issues. And Father, it would cause us to fall on our knees and to worship you. Lord, that we would see you as the good, great God that you are. And Lord, as we come to understand you better, that we would be motivated and compelled to love you with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love others, to be bold proclaimers of the goodness and greatness of you and of the glory of your gospel to the world around us. Father, we just pray you would do that in us and through us, and it's in your most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. All right, so four points today. I know Paul usually has three, so I'm not apologizing for that. Uh, point one, these are all about the uh, false teachers. Point one, what are they like? That's verses one through five in these nine verses that we just looked at. Uh, point two, what do they do? That's roughly verses uh, six and seven. And then point three, false teachers, how do we know, how do we discern between uh, what kind of false teacher they are. That's verse 8 and 9. And then finally, some application points. How, what do we do with this? How do we take these truths and apply them in our context today? So point one, again, so what are they like? What do they do? How do we know? And then what do we do? So what are they like? Verses 1 through 5. Uh, verse 1, Paul says, but understand this. Uh, that word understand, it's, it's also translated in other versions as know as realize, as mark, kind of the idea here is uh, knowing something through experience. He's saying, look around, take notice, mark my words, uh, see what's going on around you. This is in the imperative. It's the first of two commands that Paul gives in this passage. Uh, and he says, look, we're in these last days. And again, I referenced that on the chart earlier, but uh, the last days are the... Uh, we could probably not have to look at that the whole time, but uh, maybe. Thanks. Um, so uh, the last days is, is a concept that we talked about earlier when our Paul preached through First uh, Timothy 4. Uh, verse 1 uses this term, and he went back and talked about how it's used in, in the New Testament. And if you want to refresh on that, I'd recommend going back and listening to his excellent exegesis of that. Uh, so that's these last days that we're in, and again, we are still in this period. It's between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. 
obviously we're 2,000 years further down the road, closer to his return, uh, which we greatly look forward to, but we're still in that same imminent looking forward period. Then he says, there will come. So this is in the future tense, so he's looking forward. He's not talking about necessarily directly the times right then, but he's saying there's going to come a time in this time when uh, these, these, these difficult times will occur. Um, so, and we'll see that he actually turns it back and makes it a, a present thing as well, but we'll, we'll touch on that here. And then he talks about these times of difficulty. This word difficulty is used only one other time in the New Testament, and uh, it's used in the book of Matthew where Jesus encounters these, uh, the two demoniacs and the two demon-possessed guys, and, he, and he, they were described in the book of Matthew as men that were so fierce that no one could pass by. That word fierce... Same word as uh, difficult, so it's, uh, it's, it's a little different. You know, we're used to seeing the external uh, difficulties that Paul is addressing with uh, the persecution from the Roman Empire at all, but now he's saying this is uh, a different kind of thing. Josephus, in that same time frame, uh, used that word in a way to describe men or animals that were so difficult to deal with that they were deemed dangerous. So you get a sense of what Paul is addressing with these guys he's about to describe. These are men that are so difficult that, that they are actually uh, dangerous, hard to control. Um, so then, given that kind of overview, in verses 2 through 5, Paul begins to lay out what these men, what these false teachers in the, in the church at Ephesus, what they were going to experience were really going to be like. These difficult men were the cause of the difficult times that they were about to experience. So here we go, and this is not pretty. Uh, these people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Just in those three verses, that there's 18 characteristics, identifying characteristics of these men, of these false teachers in Ephesus. It's actually 19 if you count verse 5, which some uh, do. But this is Paul describing who they are. Uh, and let me just make some general comments. I'm not going to walk through all these things. You probably are thankful for that. But um, the, this is not unusual for Paul to make a list of, of a bad list of things. He does it in Romans 1, a, a list that probably many of you have read and are familiar with. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he does it as well. Galatians 5, which we looked at last week briefly. And even in uh, 1 Timothy, we saw it in 1 Timothy 1, where Paul lists these, these characteristics of these bad people. In this list, there are six items that are found nowhere else. They're only here. There's also four of these items that are shared with the Romans 1 list, so there's some significant overlap there as well. Uh, just in general, if I could say this about this entire list, verse 2 and verse 4 kind of bracket this whole thing with what I would argue is the key problem that, uh, that Paul is addressing here through Timothy to the church in Ephesus. Um, the problem, the key problem, this misdirected loves, this... Uh, misdirected, twisted affections, this bent, uh, crooked, twisted heart, if you would. And he does that by identifying the first thing he says is lovers of self. Then he says lovers of money. And then at the back end, at the end of verse 4, he talks about they're lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So these men were lovers of themselves first and foremost. 
in everything they did, and they were not lovers of God. And I would argue that if you want to shrink that down, uh, that these, all these dark descriptors in between, uh, they flow out of this crooked heart that is turned inward on self, verse 2, that opener, instead of upwards towards God, which is that end piece in verse 4. Uh, this was the problem that Paul is addressing, one that is ever so apparent in the world that we live in today. And it flows out of our worldview. Those big questions that I referenced at the beginning, you know, who am I, where did I come from? How you answer those questions is a, is a function of what, what you're looking to, whether you are bent inward or bent upwards. Am I created by God or am I the result of millions or billions of years of undirected purposeless forces in the universe? Am I created in God's image, uh, which is what the Bible teaches, or am I whoever I desire to be? Is there a God, or am I God? Those views shape how you look at all of this. And in, in this polluted stream of self-worship that Paul is describing here, we find all these other items of refuse floating merrily along, if you would. Pride, arrogance, abuse, ungratefulness, unholiness, the whole list. John MacArthur similarly calls these, these lovers of self, these people, the sewer out of which uh, the rest of these ugly sins are all discharged. So that core heart problem is where all of this comes from. And of that list, let me just highlight one of these. Uh, in verse 3, uh, the ESV talks about the quality of being unappeasable. It's also translated irreconcilable in the New American Standard and unforgiving in the NIV and, and also unbendable in another version. So these men are unwilling to reconcile. They are unbending. They are unwilling to forgive. They are unwilling to confess sin, to acknowledge wrongdoing. They are unwilling to restore relationships. It's hard to move forward in this situation with men like this in your church who are unwilling to, to reconcile, to move forward. And Paul caps this list off in verse 5 by saying this, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And he says, avoid these people. Uh, Paul closes this in verse 5 here this he, with an observation that I, would, I think is frightening. Uh, on the outside, uh, it's one thing to have this be Romans 1, which is the world. It's nothing to describe people that actually could be in your church. These men can appear to be believers. Uh, they talk about the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. External conformity to uh, the religious behaviors, but internal rebellion. I think this was Jesus' judgment of the Pharisees in uh, Matthew 23. He says they appear to be outwardly beautiful, but inwardly they are full of dead men's bones. So whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but it's a grave. It's, there's death on the inside. That's the picture he has of these men. So they are, they are appearing to be godly on the outside, but they de deny its power. How do they deny that power? Well, the power comes from the gospel, from the good news, of which they are not partakers, which will be made more clear here in a second. Uh, so Paul summarized these false teachers um, in his letter to another pastor, to Titus. In Titus 1.16, he says, They, the false teachers, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. And then finally, at the very tail end of verse 5 here, Paul gives his second command. First command was to understand the times, if you would, and the second command is to avoid these men. 
uh, and its command to Timothy and to us. And we'll come back to that idea shortly. So now we've seen who these guys are. We have a very dark description of them. So what is it exactly that they do? Well, Paul talks to Timothy about that in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6 says, But uh, for among them there are those who creep in households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So Paul has taken these future, these, these men like this are going to cause these difficult times, and he's turning it now to the present because he's going to talk about what's going on in Ephesus. Uh, these difficult times, uh, the, these future difficult times have, are becoming the present difficult times. From among those wicked, dark lovers of self that we just talked about are some of these Ephesian false teachers. And I think the word creep here is uh, particularly appropriate in describing the men uh, from verses uh, 2 through 4. These treacherous, arrogant, boastful, abusive men who worm their way into unsuspecting households. That's how another version describes it. And they gain a foothold with weak women. So this uh, weak women uh, translates a word that, is, uh, that normally means women of small stature, physically small. But in this case, Paul is using it to describe women who are actually diminished in other ways, uh, morally diminished. This isn't Paul's view of all women. If you read the rest of this letter or any of Paul's letters, you'll see that, in, that he holds women in, in high regard in other places. So he's talking about these women in this place at this time. Uh, they are susceptible to being misled by these false teachers that Paul's dealing with here, that Timothy is actually, uh, for two reasons. First reason is they are burdened by sin. Um, they are unable to believe, they're unable to appropriate God's promised forgiveness in their life. The sin is not specified, it's unknown exactly what they had done, but whatever it was, it was so, so grievous that they could not they felt they couldn't be forgiven by God. They, they were unable to uh, be with God. So that's the past peace, if you would. And they're, they're also unable to control their passions uh, in the life that they're living now. And self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the next verse that we get to here will help us, ex help us understand why the women had the problem in, in this place. So the past sins and even the present living of their lives was such that um, they were susceptible then to these evil men. Verse 7 says, these women were always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So this, uh, this knowledge of the truth is, is kind of a key phrase here. Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 2.4 where he's saying, I want you know, God's desires for all men to come to a knowledge of the truth and to be saved. Uh, we saw it and we'll look at it in detail here from uh, verse 2 from last week. I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 25 where he uses that same words. Uh, Titus 1.1 1, 1 is uh, the same idea as well. And, and if you take all those ideas together, what Paul is talking about here is a saving understanding of the gospel message, resulting in a personal relationship with God through faith in the risen Christ. So these women, they were always keen on the new truth, whether it was uh, whatever the latest knowledge, the fad uh, theology of the time, whether it's the prosperity gospel or the new perspective on Paul or who knows what it was they were dealing with. Again, the, we don't know exactly, but whatever it was, I, you know, the picture I have in my mind is, is a honeybee going from flower to flower to flower to flower to flower, always, you know, enjoying the sweetness in the moment of that thing, but never really uh, anchoring and growing roots, just flitting about. Um, and Paul had, had previously warned of that kind of problem in his letter to the Ephesians, 
which, uh, and it was here not just women, but he was talking about his concerns for the church at large. In Ephesians 4.14, he said uh, that the church should be so that, that these people, uh, the church, would no longer be children, tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So there's, that's, you get the idea. It's they're on the waves, the wind's blowing, they're not, they're not anchored deeply in the truth. They are just sort of going wherever the thing goes. <clears throat> Excuse me. So these women were not able to grasp the truth of the gospel and the truth of the freedom that they have in Christ and the forgiveness they have in Christ. And, and as such, they were then susceptible to these evil men who went in their homes and preyed on them with these uh, false teachings. So the false teachers, we saw what they were in 2 through 5. We saw what they were doing in Ephesus in verses 6 and 7. But, but interestingly, last week, if you paid attention to the end of Randy's sermon, Paul is telling Timothy with people that you are struggling with that you should, um, he, he told him in 2, 24 through 26, he says that he encouraged Timothy to patiently endure evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So you have, uh, in this case, they're, the, the verbiage there, they're prisoners of war. I mean, the, Satan, the, 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 bad, the big bad guy, has made them part of his team, and we should try to not, you know, admonish them gently so maybe we can win them back. And now he's saying, these evil men, avoid them. So uh, what do we do with that? Uh, do we admonish them, or do we avoid them, or what's the plan here? Well, I think verses 8 and 9 give us some indication of uh, Paul's answer to that. Verse 8 says, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, these men being the false teachers, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. So Paul introduces these two men, Janus and Jambres, uh, as an instructional tool. Uh, the names of these men are not in the Old Testament, but they are identified in Jewish and pagan and Christian literature of the time, so they would be familiar to the audience that uh, Paul was telling Timothy to address. Uh, and they are actually two of Pharaoh's magicians when these magicians, if you remember the story in Exodus 7 where he, he encountered, you know, the, the, they do miracles and these magicians do miracles to match. And so Paul is saying that these guys uh, are the same. He's, con he's comparing them with the false teachers. And his, uh, these, just as these magicians opposed Moses and God, so these False teachers were opposing Timothy and Paul and God as well. Uh, Paul further identifies these false teachers as men who are not believers. They are corrupted in their mind, and they are disqualified regarding the faith. They are not a part of the faith. Uh, and then verse, verse 9, he says, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was for those two men. So just as Janus and uh, Jambres failed publicly in their push back against Moses and against God. So these men will fail publicly as well in their false teaching ministry. They will fail. They will, uh, the, 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 their false teaching is demonstrated by the fruit of their lives will eventually be exposed and truth will be vindicated. So you have some sense of that, but, not, but now how do we determine whether we are to, to gently admonish them or to uh, avoid them completely? And I think the answer he gives in this illustration is 
check the fruit. You know, you will know a tree by its fruit. So if as you engage with these people, there is evidence of some sense of repentance and turning and willingness to move in that direction, i.e. not the irreconcilable men that, we, that was in that list of things, then uh, give it time, uh, engage them in that way. And I think you'll see as Paul, as we get specific about how to work this out, um, we'll, we'll see that same thought process. So if we're going to summarize this whole uh, nine-verse section, two commands. One, understand, so be aware that there is evil in the world. There are evil people around you. There may be evil people in your church. And if you find them, you should admonish them, command one. Command two, avoid them. So if that doesn't work, then avoid them. Uh, get away. So how do we live this out here in this time that we're in? Well, I think it's helpful to look at this from three different levels, a church level, a family level, and then finally an individual level. So first, the church. <clears throat> the primary audience that this, to this, of this letter that Paul is writing is Timothy. Timothy is the head of the church at Ephesus. So primarily, this message is to us as elders and leaders here at Christ Bible Church. Um, and the, the message for us is that we should do these same things. We, sh we should guard the flock. One of the primary functions that we have as elders here at Christ Bible Church is to guard the flock from both inside and outside threats. So Paul described this responsibility very clearly in his farewell speech that he gave to the elders at Ephesus. Again, here's the Ephesus showing up again. This is in Acts 20, same bunch. Uh, and again, we take that responsibility very seriously here. We desire as a church to be deeply anchored and rooted in God's word. Our doctrinal statement is a visible expression of that, both what that looks like and our desire to have that be uh, where we land. Uh, so as a church, and I touched on this in the opening, but we want to preach the word. That's why we value this time so much, because it's, it's our desire to rightly uh, divide the word of truth, to rightly communicate to you in ways that you understand what God's call on your life is, and you understand how we are to be transformed into his image and to, uh, be, to bring glory to his name. So... We want to preach the word in that way. We want to, out of that, have hearts that are formed and become more fully devoted disciples who then make other disciples who continue that process of heart formation empowered by the Spirit. And uh, as a result of that, then we are a people who engage our world. We engage with each other as we encourage one another towards love and good works, and we engage the unbelieving world with the beauty, the truth, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's who we want to be and work to be as a church. And our primary tool as elders in guarding the flock is church discipline, which we practice here. Uh, the process is outlined in our, in our membership covenant, which is available online for you to peruse. This is how we take that command to avoid and, and work at implementing that as a church. And as I alluded to when we were talking about do you avoid or do you admonish, I think as a starting point, we think it's best to assume that these people who may be propagating false teaching can be persuaded by gentle correction. So that's generally the step one until proven otherwise. The goal is always reconciliation. The goal is to get everybody together moving forward in the same direction. And the Apostle Paul outlines this approach, if you would, again in his letter to another pastor, to Titus, one of these pastoral epistles, in Titus 3, verses 9 through 11. Uh, he tells Titus this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. 
As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. So this is the, what avoiding looks like for us as a church. So we admonish, admonish. You know, that actually matches up well with Matthew 18 as well. So that's uh, our call as elders. Um, it sounds like just reading that, that Paul had the same kind of problems that Timothy did in Crete as opposed to in Ephesus, and we have those here as well. So again, we take this very seriously, and, and so please let us know if, there's, uh, if you have people of the church creeping into your house, let us know. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll be all over it. <laughs> A second level of application for those of you who are husbands uh, or fathers or heading a household in some fashion, you have those similar responsibilities uh, that we do as elders for your household. You must be on the lookout for fierce wolves that are uh, after your family. You have to guard your family. And our job is to help equip you uh, to do that. Your family member's worldview is significantly impacted by the information they are exposed to, both inside and outside. So we have an opportunity to shape the worldview, to shape the, this, this truth piece, uh, to make sure that we can discern false teaching and reject it from both the inside, and, I, and we've talked about lots of ways to do that as families. Uh, family worship is, a, is something we've addressed previously, raising up your children in the uh, discipline and instruction of the Lord right out of Ephesians. Um, your personal devotions as leaders in your home go a long way towards your kids seeing that, that you value this and that your worldview is shaped by, uh, by the truth of the gospel. And for those of you who are married, I would offer that your marriage relationship communicates the same thing. If, you're, if your children see and your spouse sees someone who is trying to live out the gospel in their marriage and in their family, it will go a long way towards shaping their view of being able to discern truth and error. There are also lots of outside shaping influences. Uh, this, is, this is the avoid piece, if you would, how you do this as a family. Uh, it's, it's the list of the normal culprits, uh, friends, peers, school, television, and of course, uh, social media. And I know we've talked about this before, but I came across this, across this quote last week that just actually uh, scared me a little bit. But this is a liberal MSNBC commentator who is trying to tell conservatives how they were misreading the, the, the uh, uprisings on college campuses that were supporting Hamas in this current uh, ongoing conflict. And, you know, the, the consensus generally is that the college professors drive this thinking, and his argument is that's not the case at all. He says this, this generation of college students gets its facts from Google. It forges its politics via TikTok, YouTube, Twitch, Reddit, Telegram, BreadTube, and Instagram. Any professor who wants to be a political influencer should abandon the classroom and log on to these platforms. So, so we know the dangers of social media, but this is, by the time they get to college, they've already largely had these outside inputs unfiltered that have now shaped how they see what li how life works, who they are as individuals, and how they are to respond to the world around them. So again, I know this is hard. I know that it's, it has to be done well and done in a measured way, but uh, guarding your family from those inputs, from those sources, in an appropriate way is, is critical. In many respects, this is a battle for the truth. A way that you can do that as well, and we've talked about this also, is, is these, the opportunity to have the, a great family meal together where you, where you have these conversations, where you talk about what you heard at school or what this latest uh, influencer is saying, and you can help, help your 
family members begin to shape and understand and filter this through a biblical worldview. Again, it's a battle for the truth. And probably most importantly, first and last, is pray. Pray for your family members that they might be shaped and molded and grounded deeply in the Word of God. Final level of application is personal. Watch what you watch. Uh, filter your own input. In the same way that you were doing that at the family level, and we try to do that at the, at the church level, you need to do that personally. That's the avoid piece. And guard against false teachers and teaching, you have to be grounded in the truth. That's the plus, the positive piece. So to do that, you have to understand what it is. So again, we're back to spend time in the word, uh, especially, I think scripture memory is, is very helpful here. Meditating on the word of God, very helpful here. Shaping and molding our worldview and heart. Uh, listen to the word being preached. Uh, that's a good thing to do. Attend doctrine class. We just finished one and we'll start one again in the spring. Great opportunity to get initial exposure to the deep doctrinal truths of the, of, uh, the scriptures and a good place to begin to, to be deeply rooted. Uh, be involved in one of our other ministries, men's, women's, young adults, youth, children's, community groups. All of those are people gathering together to be formed together in ways that that where the thinking is shaped and hearts are shaped, and we do this as a community. And finally, uh, be disciples and make disciples. So ultimately, this is exactly what the Apostle Paul told Timothy to do uh, just a chapter ago. In 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he said, these things that I am telling you, this, these grounding truths of the faith, entrust these to faithful men and to faithful women who will then be able to teach others also. That is how these things connect. That's how this gets Built, built and moving forward. So in closing, I can't do any better than Paul's words to those Ephesian elders that I referenced earlier to sum up this section. This is Acts 20. He's, he has already spent his three years. He's done some more travels, and now he's on his way back to, to Jerusalem and eventually to prison in Rome. And this is his farewell address to them. This is 20, uh, chapter 20, verses 29 through 32. I know that my departure that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arrive men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity this morning to uh, dive into your word together. Lord, to understand the times. Lord, we pray that you would give us eyes to see properly the world around us and to respond full of grace and truth in this broken world that you have placed us in. Lord, transform our hearts. Uh, make us more and more lovers of you and not of self. Lord, in the little moments of each day, help us to choose obedience to you, to be, to be conformed more and more to your image, to be transformed into your image. Lord, empower us by your spirit to flee sin, to avoid false teaching, and to embrace you. Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word of grace. Lord, we thank you that you will build us up in it and give us the inheritance among the saints to all of us who are sanctified. Father, we thank you for these things. We pray that you would do all of these things in us and through us for your glory and for our good. For it's in your most holy and precious name we pray. Amen.